discussion of the local church. Uh, my specific topic was, of course, given to me by a sovereign providential leading of the triune God, as well as Dave Maddox. And uh, that is the question. My specific question is, why join a church? And I'll subtitle that this way. What good will my attendance do me, and what good will my attendance do for others? Something on that line. I do appreciate the groundwork which was done for me by Prof. Bookman. We are not a church, he said, and he said that correctly. We have resources, frankly, that churches don't have and wish they did. And so that being the case, you can see where I have to prove something to you this morning. And uh, I think it's pretty obvious. I need to show you, both practically and theologically, why the local assembly, we call it the church, is better, frankly, than ourselves, and why it deserves your prime energy uh, for its cause as much as possible. Can I give a parenthesis here right off the bat? Uh, I want to say that uh, going in, I feel, you know, I was just in college about a decade ago, which is, you know, I know it's been a while, but I still know what you're going through in many ways, and I'm close enough to those years to remember just how busy college life was and how busy it could be. Uh, I think you're uniquely busy at this time in your life. I, I used to get frustrated to the point of uh, sickness, probably, fits of depression anyway, when, when the speaker would say, come into chapel and say, you know, you think you're busy now. You wait until uh, you get out of here. I don't know. I, I, uh, I think your responsibilities increase. They do. You have children, a wife, a husband. You have a job that takes all of your time and more. But you generally slow down. Uh, there's no way you physically could handle what college brings you when you're 30, 35, whatever. There's just no way. I remember just running across campus. That's all my uh, college life was. Your rate of busyness, I think, will radically diminish. But I agree with you right now. You say during this short uh, series we have about the church, hey, I'm so busy right now. And I'm saying going in, I understand that, okay? Secondly, the college experience necessitates to some degree a semi-monastic view toward intellectual endeavor. In other words, big words to say, we want you to study. We really do. Uh, you will experience during this time a block of time, a period of your life that is more conducive to study than any other time will be. And even in seminary, if you go on to that for either you men or ladies, my wife has a seminary degree and loved it uh, just because she didn't want to do nothing at home <laughs> when I went. Uh, but uh, even those times are a little more difficult. You're a little older. You don't learn as easily. And so times go a little slower, frankly. Well, no, of course, no one likes to likes a hermit. Teachers, we don't like hermits in our classroom either. We uh, want you to enjoy college. But do not sell your cerebral development short. Okay. My third thing I'll say by way of parentheses here coming into this, that some of you like myself, have tremendous experience already in a church setting. I'm a PK, pastor's kid, so I know what it was like to uh, clean the bathrooms, to keep junior church going when the adults were having an extremely long communion service, you know, um, mowing the lawn. I mean, there's nothing I didn't do. Uh, sing in a seven-member choir, lead a seven-member choir, uh, cook Easter sunrise breakfast, uh, pray for the offering, take the offering, possibly count the offering, frankly, be an offering. That's really what you are as a PK, and, and that's part of it. But I, and, and, and I never really was frustrated by it. 
But some of you might feel the same way. Hey, I, I understand this. There's nothing I couldn't come in and do with my hands, you know, half my brain tied behind my back, as Rush Limbaugh says. Uh, that's possible. But what I'm, see, my message to you then and to myself is to keep your appreciation for the church alive and growing. What you might experience is what we call contempt of familiarity. You're so used to it that you grow contemptuous to it. And we want to avoid that. So I want to keep your appreciation for the church alive and growing, noticing where you can still fit into a church structure and do what possibly you alone can do. No one else is just like you. I hope you understand that and realize that by now. Well, let's get back into it. As for the definition of the word church, again, I, I, appreciate, I have appreciation for what uh, Doug Bookman had to say. And I say appreciation carefully there because it will come out, there is a slight disagreement. Remember he said that he has two theological errors, he probably does, I've got 47, and uh, one of them is disagreeing with him about the word ecclesia. And, and we, we know we have this, it's a fun disagreement, frankly, but it, it, it's helpful. And so I want you to see it a little bit. You're going to see it a little bit in my presentation because it just naturally flows. But I do believe there is a thing called the universal church. Well, let's back up. It isn't called that. That's the problem. Never called that. But there is a thing out there that when you describe it, will look a lot like a universal church. Some call it an invisible church, whatever. I don't like the terms, frankly, because they're not biblical. You don't see those terms used. But I don't think it's also wrong. I think it's a matter, frankly, of semantics and emphasis for the most part. And I think you'll sense that when I get to my third and last point this morning. So as we go on, I believe that the word, or we see that the word ecclesia is generally a general term. It's used very... Well, it can be used specifically, but it's used sometimes non-specifically. He described that for you, and let me again remind you. It can be used, or it basically means group, just group. And we might be one today in, in, in that sense. We are a church in that sense. We're a group. We're an assembly, okay? It's used in the social realm, spiritual realm, and even political realm. Acts 19, remember? A purely secular meeting of the term is used twice for an unruly mob, verses 32 and 41, and again for a lawful assembly in verse 39. Hebrews 2.12 quotes the Septuagint of Psalm 22, verse 22. It says, in the midst of the ecclesia, I will sing praises to thee. And it's not talking about the local church. It's simply talking about in the midst of the group. When I am with my fellow believers, I will praise your name. And of course, this is not a local church in the New Testament sense. So since the term is non-technical, I'm getting to a point here. Since the term is non-technical, rather practical, I feel forced into being rather practical and non-technical with you in my presentation. I really have no choice. Why join a church? I find that the reasons are intensely practical and yet intensely real. Well, why join a church? What good will my attendance do me? And what good will it do for others? I had a pastor in my experience that he was extremely uh, erudite and uh, he would always see 18 times as much in the passage as we all did in the congregation. He'd, he'd go into something like this and he'd say, well, you probably see 37 things. I don't, you know, I, I only see 36, but uh, and he'd go on and on and he'd always know more than us. But I see three, okay? You might see 10. I see three reasons, frankly, in Scripture, again, practically speaking, why, and for the sake of, uh, of the time we have, why you need to be a part of the local church. Number one, because God is not humble. I find it fascinating that when God wanted to be praised in the courts of heaven, he 
did not create one angel, nor seven, nor 37. He created an innumerable host, as far as we know. How many angels are there? We're not really told. Uh, Revelation 5.11 describes the census of the heavenly spirits as 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. I multiplied that out to about 200 million plus a few thousand. So I think we're talking about innumerable hosts. In other words, I cannot count how many angels there are. It's impossible. But that says something to me, maybe to you too, about the personality of God. He likes numbers. Especially, think of what the purpose of an angel is. The basic purpose is to praise his name. God said, I wanted praise. I want praise. I want numbers in that praise. You hear in scripture things like this. Be holy because I am holy. You be loving because I am loving. You be truthful because I am truthful. But you never hear, you never hear this statement. You be humble because I am humble. You see, God is not humble. God is proud. Let me mention humility here just as a passing point here. I think it is one of the most difficult things we have. It's one of the greatest problems we have as Christians is true humility. It's one of the slipperiest virtues that we have because you know how it is. You think you have it, you lose it. If someone says you have it and you believe them, you lose it. I mean, there's really no way to grab onto it. I think the most humble person in the world probably is the one who believes he's the most haughty and they are discouraged by their haughtiness and they cry in their face before God because of their extreme pride. And we have, and we can probably put the label on them of humble. I, I tell you, children have it. And, and you know, here I'm complimenting Christ again. I shouldn't do that. But he brings a child, puts him on his knee and says, if you want to be humble, I've got an illustration. And now that I have to, I tell you, it is humiliating to watch them as a parent because you see unabashed humility just constantly flowing through them, no matter how young. I mean, from the cradle up to about 16 months, that's how old he is. Uh, uh, their facial expressions, their reactions to you as their father. I mean, it's just pure, unadulterated humility. They think of nothing but you, and they simply want to be with you. They cry when you leave. They smile when you come home. Just look at a child for a while, and you'll see what humility is. I think God gives kids to people who need to be humbled, and that's why I got two, bang, bang, right in a row, I guess, uh, at at this time of my life. You know, and I was thinking about this. uh, Humility or pride, because the opposite. Pride is probably the only long-range problem this campus has. I'm a newcomer, but I tell you, just for sake of any kind of corporate group, pride is what will destroy us from the inside out. It would not be, frankly, you know, financial mismanagement. Those things can be handled by a sovereign God. It will not be bad hiring practices. Again, those kind of things can, God can handle. But when it comes to us as a group or as an administration or faculty, putting our hands up to God and saying no, or, a, you know, again, a prideful attitude coming from within. That's the one thing that would hurt us. So I challenge you right off the bat, although I'm not going to speak on it for this time, watch our pride. Watch your pride and watch our own. We need that. But humility is the correct response of a creature to a creator. Thus, God never finds himself in the position of being humble. Can you turn to a passage for me? This is, uh, to me, a... a, a a classic passage about God's lack of humility. Ezekiel chapter 30, uh, or 7. Ezekiel chapter 7, verse 9. 
Ezekiel 7 is a uh, passage dealing with judgment on Israel. Ezekiel is, of course, well, God is frustrated with Israel. They're about to be judged. And so the word comes through Ezekiel to the children of Israel. Start at verse um, 5 in Ezekiel 7. Ezekiel 7, verse 5. Thus says the Lord God, a disaster, a singular disaster. Behold, it has come. An end has come. The end has come. It has dawned for you. Behold, it has come. Doom has come to you, you who dwell in the land. The time has come. A day of trouble is near, and not of rejoicing in the mountains, nor or now upon you I will soon pour out my fury and spend my anger upon you. I will judge you according to my ways, or I'm sorry, your ways, and I will repay you to all your abominations. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will repay you according to your ways, and your abominations will be in your midst. Now notice this next statement. Then you will know. Then you will know that I didn't mumble. Then you will know that there's not an earthquake that happened to come by. Then you will know, here's how it goes, that I am the Jehovah Nake. I am the Lord who smites. You won't mistake me for nothing. You'll say, that's God. And I'll say, you're right. You're right. You want to, do you want to know any more? I'll tell you more. I mean, there's, you have the sense, and this happens, of course, other times where God says, you will know who I am. God is, uh, again, never humbling, in, uh, never mumbling in Scripture. He never lets us mistake someone or something for him. He is proud. I am not ashamed to say that about my God. My God is proud and proud of his pride. We thus can see how God feels when we worship him together. When the courts of heaven or a group of people bring praise to him together. It's not, oh, you know, you really, you know, stop, stop, stop. I, I, don't, I don't need that. It's, it's only noon. Where are you going? You know, uh, is that all? Uh, you haven't even touched it yet. Please continue. Uh, you have not even began to tell others how good I am. That's what our God does. He's proud of his pride, and very blatantly so. Now, it's true that corporate worship, okay, we have said here, as we worship together, as he has done with his angels, he loves numbers. We can't get around that. It's true, though, that corporate worship means nothing for the individual who is brought to the service as a horse is brought to bitter water. You know, neither party drinks. And I think God is discouraged, if not disgusted, by the man or the woman who worships carelessly. But that's another issue I'm not talking about. I'm merely trying to argue against the idea, in my first point, that God is just as pleased by one man praising him as he is by many men praising him and worshiping him at the same time and in the same place. Put it another way, as the parishioners are joined together, God can be worshipped in a way which exceeds individual worship. I think we believe this intuitively. I further believe that we are believing something that is correct and indeed suspiciously biblical, that God is not humble and thus loves numbers. Number two, my second point of three is simply that because we need to join and become part of a church, practically speaking, because man is not reliable. God not humble, but now man is not reliable. I, I see this coming through most uh, discussions of theology that I see and hear and read and even in college discussions, that most of your theological beliefs are the base or are based on your view of man. Okay, your view uh, specifically something like as major or as major as salvation. How did people get saved? Or how do people get saved? 
How do you become a Christian? You explain that to me, and I'll tell you how your view of man works. Okay? If, if you just stumble upon God someday and say, hey, I, I, I like what I see, uh, and you, as it were, find God on your own, I'll tell you what your view of man is. Rather Pelagian, rather, uh, you know, you pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, uh, bootstraps and, and found God. If, on the other hand, as people have said, or uh, one, of the, one of the finest songs I've heard written lately is called The Hound of Heaven, his man's trying to get away from God, and God captures him as a hound does a rabbit. He was found of God. Frankly, that's how I see the, our, our, our state before God. We are men running. We are men with our hands up in anger to God. Out, coming out of the womb, we speak lies. And yet God, in his sovereignty, somehow puts that hand down and says, I want you to become mine. Well, other things work the same way as far as your view of man. My point here is, you tell me your view of the local assembly. In other words, what its need is, or why we even have it, its benefits, its purpose. And I will tell you your view of man, how you view yourself. We talked, again, Bookman talked about this place offering a lot. Let me, let me give you a feeling, though, how we are weak. We are weak in this setting, we call it a college, for several ways. In several ways. Again, I think of eight. You can probably think of 35. We have here a limited age differential. 18 to 22, some of you are coming in late. You're 30, 35, no problem. But the average age is 18 to 22. And as you go through your lunchroom theology, I'm part of that too a lot of times. I did it. Realize that your, your uh, means are rather limited simply because we're young. And youth has its uh, helps. It also has its distractions. And so we're good there, but we're limited. We're limited in age. Secondly, we're basically homogenous in our levels of maturity. If you're 20, you can't have been 25 years old in the Lord, right? You, it just it doesn't work mathematically. You have got to be less than 20 years old in Christ. There's, a, you know, as far as when you became a Christian, when you became a believer, when you started maturing. So we have basically a limited and, can I say, homogenous. We're about the same levels of maturity. Yes, we have some sticking out here and there both ways. But generally, we're all struggling the same way from the same vantage point. Thirdly, we generally are the same, we have the same view of education. That's why we're here. Okay? We are striving for similar goals in education. Uh, it's just part of the college life. We respect it, and we thus spend a lot of money on it. We are similar, uh, of course, this is somewhat mandated, we have similar fashion statements across campus. And again, we maybe don't have some choices here, but realize that that's part of the thing, too, that uh, we all basically look the same because of how or where we are. We are similar in our family situations. I would suspect that the majority of you come from traditional two-family or two-parent homes. And uh, of course, we all have our, have our hurts and our woes here, and you have more pains than I'll ever know sometimes, but, and some of you do not come from that. But generally speaking, I am, I am one that I come from a very traditional family. I have a good father and good mother role model that I can follow. We are similar in our professional goals. We basically all are all after white-collar jobs. We wouldn't be here again if we really expected to go into a blue-collar profession and sit there the rest of our life. We expect, because of the college degree, right or wrong, by the way, that just because we have a college degree, we can get a job. And in fact, a managerial job, something like that. Well, that's I'm talking goals there, okay? The last thing I, that comes to mind, and maybe you disagree here, but similar personalities. There is a campus personality here, generally speaking. There is one, and uh, every campus has a different one, or you know, slightly askew from the other, from the next. 
And that personality works into you, and you become part of the group. So as it, as it were, you have a personality that is pretty much consistent, as I see it, with other people around here. Well, you see, back to my point, man is not reliable. Now, what do I mean by that? Unless Here's what I mean. Unless you and I are constantly rubbing shoulders with people who are different from yourself, different from ourselves, we will not grow. I am not reliable to sustain my own spiritual maturity by myself. And except we have potential differences, we have not formed a true church. Now, uh, Prof. Bookman took you to Ephesians 2. Can I please have you go back there? I am not uh, really disagreeing with what he did there, but I want you to see it again. Very important, in Ephesians chapter 2, he hurriedly went over verse 14. Can I begin reading in verse 14 of Ephesians chapter 2? My point again being, we have to, in our spiritual maturity, meet up with people and the types of people that we are just frankly not alike, or that we are not like them. Okay, Ephesians 2, verse 14, for he himself is our peace. Um, actually, 13 is good too. For, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been made near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of division between us. And, of course, the us there has reference to, as we talked on Friday, the Jew and the Gentile. We will never know how strong of a division that was. There was a wall right down the middle, I mean, like, a, like these gymnasiums that have retractable walls. I mean, that's where they had their church services, the Jews and the Gentiles. You, you, you never broke the wall down. Verse 15, having abolished, though, in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, taking down the wall, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. Uh, verse 18, not that I want to skip 17, but for sake of time, there I could have read it, I guess. For through him we, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. You can read 17 on your own. My point again, the church should be, a clearinghouse of ministry, and that through the efforts of a group of people who do not think the same, look the same, speak the same, or even view God the same, the work is done, and that individually we will mature as well. Now think of it. Go back to what I said about our, our situation here. The church, different ages, zero to grandpas. They're all beneficent to you. Say that right? Beneficent. However you say that, they help you. The little kid in junior church that uh, you know, tell to sit still for two hours, and of course he can't do it. And then the grandpa who knows how it is to live. Both have their benefits, and you need to learn from both of them. Levels of maturity. The greater and the, and the lesser than yourself. I used to be like that. Thank God I can help him. I wish I could be like her. How'd you get to be like that? Questions like that. That's what you do in a church. Well-educated? Not really. Sometimes the most godly person in the pew is the one that only knows Jesus loves me. That's about all they know out of their whole Christian experience. But again, that humility factor comes back to haunt us all. She is, she'll be higher up in the kingdom of God simply because of her place in Jesus Christ's name. All she thinks of is Christ and Christ alone, things like that. So you see, education is different, but that's good. Family situations. The reason I bring it up originally is because I bring it back now. Half, if half of our world or half of our nation is divorcing, half the marriages are ending in divorce, we know and we sense this in the church today that a lot of programs we have mistook for 
the normal church family. I'm sorry, you know, the, the, uh, the father and mother and the three kids, two and a half kids, you know, the average family. And we run all the programs for them, and we forget about, like my mother, a widowed woman who doesn't have a husband, but yet she's got money as though she did because of insurance. And so she is approached as though uh, she is a, you know, two-family, I mean, I'm just giving you the feeling that she has given me. You know, nothing for me really going on in the church, but money, oh, you bet, don't ask for that, you know, because they know we, us widows have it. But we don't really, and, and, and I'm always a widow. Now, I'm, I'm not single, I'm a widow. How come I can't be just single in the sense that now, now that those years have passed and I only have great memories about what happened to my husband, can I go on with life? All these little things we have to remember, divorcees and, and abused families and such things like that. We call them dysfunctional, probably the result of sin, of course, each time. But we learn from our friends who are in the church next to us in the pew who are from a family that we can't imagine. I've told my class about this one girl I, I got to know last year. Uh, unsaved, and she told me about her family. Two, three dads, two of the first which, well, the third one's a terrible crook right now, but the other two left early on in her life, one saying, you know I wanted a daughter to her mother. And the second one beat her mercilessly, and her older sister kept saying, stop crying. If you stop crying, he'll stop beating it. Well, that's all she remembers about these two men. And, 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 and you get the feeling, that, and I even asked her, what is your background now? I mean, what, how do you feel about things? And she didn't know what I meant originally, but then I cried a little more, and she says, you know, I go to the bed... Right. I go to bed every night with the radio blaring, the lights on, and I hate people. Well, yeah, I, I, I said, uh, not that that's the, I'm not excusing that at all and, and how you act. But you see where this is all coming from. I mean, not all coming from. Back up. How your view of even God has been built by a dad that hated you. And I say God to you, I say Father to you, and you think, why would I want that? I have, I have three of them. I don't need any more. When I hear father, I think love. I mean, he was the most wonderful man I can ever imagine. And so I'm not excusing it. We do not want to do that. We want to say these people are coming from backgrounds that will blow your circuit breakers. I mean, you can't believe what these people have been through. And we need to see it. We need to sit right next to them and feel their pain. Uh, I talked last year to a um, bulimic, uh, anorexic, and uh, she, had been, she had gotten over a couple years before, but she, her point was, nobody knew what it felt like. Nobody knew what it felt like. And I couldn't get through to anybody what it felt like. Finally, she found somebody who just sat down and said, let me hear it. And that's part of this thing we call the church. Similar professional goals, I tell you, in the, in the church you don't have that. Thank God we have mechanics who can fix the cars of the pastor in the church. Uh, similar personalities, oh, hardly. Uh, we have everything from soup to nuts, and you know that. It is, in fact, your challenge. It is your responsibility to befriend the soup and the nuts. Or, let's just make it practical, one person at a time. You say to yourself, this year, I don't know that person. I, am, I have nothing in common with them. They are not in my circle. They're not my age. They're not my professional goal, whatever. Part of your job is the church the local assembly is to say, I can learn from that person. I want to get to know them. And just walk up and say, do you like the Vikings? Do you like the Rams? What do you, you know? They'll say yes to both probably. But uh, get to know them. Get to know them. I am not arguing here, by the way, against the parachurch idea. In a, in, in a sense, we are one. That is a, a ministry that supports a certain avenue of the church. That's partly what we call a parachurch organization. But my point to summarize is simply that everybody, we, a parachurch in, um, mission included, should be in the process of assisting the true and whole body in each community, the whole thing. We do not want to segment our, our, uh, 
our efforts too much. It's not because we are not reliable. We will not mature if we do not have this around us. I frankly would say it this way, then. You cannot mature in this setting if this is the only setting you have. This is not enough. You need to feel what's out there and see other Christians and befriend them. Number three. So number first point, God is not humble. Man is not reliable. Lastly, because the body is not individual. The body is not individual. Now, just the nature of this point shows where I disagree with a little bit of what was said Friday. And again, I say with all respect, I have, in fact, severe reservation and trepidation to say that I ever disagree with a fellow uh, teacher, especially one that's older. But I just don't. And I went through this in college with him. He was my teacher, and I, he knows to this day that he hasn't convinced me like he said. So I'll admit he's not here, so I I can admit to you that, uh, yeah, it doesn't make sense to me, but let me tell you why, okay? That is, and, and, and my reasoning is rather simple. No one disputes that there is this thing called the body of Christ. Every, and we talked about it at the beginning of a chapel, a fellowship that goes to all believers. There is no choices to be made. I can't you know, decide not to fellowship with a, with a believer I don't like, those kind of things. The body of Christ, all living believers, or all believers since Christ, as we say. And if I can just read some verses, for sake of time, you don't have time to go to them. But let me just read. I took my computer and asked it a simple question. Give me every time the word church occurs to the next to the word body within five verses. And it's a quite quite a list. It just pops up on your screen. Something like this. 1 Corinthians 12, 27 and 28. Now you are the body of Christ. Each one of you is a part of it. And in the church, God has appointed first. Paul necessitates that we suppress individualism for the greater cause of corporate Solidarity. Solidarity. What does that mean? Sticking together. We suppress our desire to be individuals. And believe me, we've got it. There it is again, pride. Some people think that the more we split, you know, the more church splits, the more fundamental and more, the more godly it is. You can't be more wrong. The more you want to... This, where does the desire to split come from? Usually. Very rarely is it because of a doctrinal belief. It's, it's usually because I can do it better, and I know I can, and I'm an American, and by all means, Americans do things their own way. And it's, a, it, 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 it's, it's an immensely democratic way or individualistic way of thinking that the Bible says, don't do it. Don't do it. We need to suppress our individualism for the greater cause of corporate solidarity. A text uh, that I, I see is really pulling into the, the communion debate, or the, the, the church, when it comes to the communion service, is 1 Corinthians 10:17. Let me read it for you. For we being many, well, let me verse 16. I, uh, the cup of blessing which we bless, the cup being passed around, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, break off a piece and pass it around, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Now notice what he's trying to say about the body. He's doing a nice little play on words here. For we being many, many little pieces of bread and many sips of, of, of wine, whatever, For we being many are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. We are one body. It feels as though we're many. I agree. All the little pieces of bread, and now we've changed it because of of sanitary reasons, I guess, little cups and individual pieces of, you know, cracker and such. But in this day, it was very realistic that I was taking your germs, you're getting mine. I am becoming what you are in the sense that I have to taste your germs and get them and keep them. If you've ever gone through a communion service where it's a common cup, I've done it twice, it's quite a feeling because you really remember who was to your right. I mean, you, you, you can't forget their face. Uh, and as it comes down the first time, it was in, 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 in Israel, and uh, my wife was here, and it was coming this way. And, and we looked at each other. It was an Anglican church and, and, and kind of a what-do-we-do-now feeling, you know. And she said, I'm not going to. And so for the sake of being the man of the house, I didn't either. <laughs> and it went by. But... Uh, 
The second time, I said, I'm going to do it. I'm, I'm sorry. I, 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 I want to feel what Christ felt, you know, or the disciples did. Somebody got Judas the germs, right? And as it came, as it came down, and, and, and I, I just couldn't help but watching him put up to his lips, like, okay, if I turn the cup, you know, in a certain way, it won't be. But I, I know it doesn't do any good because by the time you get the whole place done, you know, like in, in, in Romania, my mother went to Romania, the, the one cup is passed all downstairs, goes upstairs to the balcony. I mean, 500, 600 people in a small little building. Everybody gets it, you know. The point being, and this it's a great illustration. We've mainly lost it because of little cups. But the point is, I am you. I may not even like you. I have nothing to do with you. Uh, you're a Jew. I'm a Gentile. That might be the case back here. But you know what? I am Christ says, I'm going to force you to be like him. I'm going to be forced you to be like her. In fact, you're going to get sick like they are, possibly. And I'm not upset about it, God would say. I want you to feel what they are. Uh, that's just the point to me of, of, of communion. It's a communion this way. It's us. I know we have made it into a very vertical thing, communion with God this way. Well, I think that should take place all the time. I'm talking about this way. There should be a communion of the saints during the communion service. Well, what I'm speaking against, in part or here, basically, is that the part of the body which, feeling that I can be a part of the body, but I can still watch, you know, on Sunday morning, just watch TV, put my hand on the TV when he says to do it. Um, I can... I'm, my dad being a pastor for many years, he had one man always say to him, you know, I feel more with God in the field on Sunday morning on my tractor. I just feel more with God. Well, it's true you don't have a, you know, a, a roof on your head and things like that, but he's missing the point of the body. And that is that you've got to have corporateness together. Or I'm saying that's, that's kind of redundant. Uh, you have to be together to be a body. A foot out there in the field is not helping the arm that's in the church. The body... And especially its localized representation is being torn if the members are not there. So you see how I'm saying, yes, there is this thing called a larger group. But on an individual level, we have got to, to localize. If you do not localize, there, you, you're right back to the same problem. All, this, all the parts, the body parts are spread abroad, not able to help each other, not able to minister to each other and to help each other grow back to the same point as my first two. So what I'm speaking against is that parts of the body worship separately and think that that's, that that's good enough. That's what some people believe the, the universal church is, by the way. Since I'm a member of the universal church, I don't have to become part of a local one. Well, that's, a, that's taking a reality and, 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 uh, and arguing incorrectly about it and uh, using it as, a, as, a, as an excuse, frankly, and it's just not there. I agree. Over 100 time, 115 times the words used, uh, over 100 of them, refer to a local body. I agree wholeheartedly. That's my whole point here. That a larger group has got to meet individually in local settings. Well, my last two points go, therefore, two ways. Or my last point goes two ways here. On a local level, we need you. I realize you're busy. We want you to study. There's, you can do both. You really can your, your place in a local church, we don't expect you to be running it, frankly, uh, simply to be part of it, to, to see the people where they are and let them see you in all your honesty, all your openness and transparency. We need you. God in his providence has placed you around other Christians who need to grow through you and for you to grow through them. But my point here, and again, does get to be broad. I think I need to say this too. As far as my love for the local church goes, it does not mean, therefore, that I do not have a love for the larger body. 
I think we can make the make the mistake to go too uh, feel too introspective here and only worry about our local setting. Let me say this, and I, I don't know how to say it except well, I've never really thought of how I'll say it exactly. So here it comes. Watch what I say and see if I, see if I agree with it. To each or to some degree, each local church, and in fact each member, therefore, should be doing something to assist the larger body. That sounds pretty good to me. Each church should consciously be doing something that says, this is not just for, for us, for me, but this is for every believer I meet, or, or, or this is for a group over here that is not part of our group. Uh, and again, I'm coming from a background, my, my dad is a pastor of a Baptist church in, in rural Wisconsin. We had lovely fellowships with or relationships to other churches in the area, whether it be uh, Assembly of God, Methodist, Covenant, things like this, in that in a sense that they knew where my dad stood. They knew he was good old Marv, Pastor Marv, and he was a rock on some things. But he was also a very kind man. So they never avoided him in the sense of being a, you know, a, a, a religious jerk. They, they, they loved him, the other men in the uh, area. And they would come to him, frankly, for some advice on pastoral matters. But what my dad did, he frankly had this view of, of what he owed them. And that was his friendship. And in fact, whenever he could, personal contact and even taking or getting groups together from both churches for picnics and for roller skating, things, things like that. You've got to be careful on some things, but if you train your people well, they understand what's going on. And um, it was a marvelous time. I, I'll never forget the times of, of ministry we had to other people as well as the times of growing that we had. So my point there is simply the strength if I put it in other words, the strength we build together will lead to outward acts to the extended church. It has to. We have to. The strength we build together in our local churches should lead to outward acts to the extended church, which I will call the body of Christ. I'll end with this illustration. I, I, to me, it still blows my mind. I've never met the man that's responsible for it. I have two illustrations in my mind of, of the extended body. I'll give you one. And I'll be done. The, uh, in, in college, it was my sophomore year, and my roommate, who now happens to be my brother-in-law, we married sisters, he, uh, neat the situation, we uh, decided during spring break, we had two weeks to uh, shoot the breeze, and so I asked if I could use my mother's car, and she said yes, and uh, we made a deal, I'd pay for the gas if he'd give me lifetime haircuts, free, which if I can get to Minnesota, I still have them, but I you know, forget that. But um, so we just took off. We didn't know where we were going. We, you know, we, we had some friends in, uh, let's see, where was it? Tennessee, Georgia, South Carolina, Pennsylvania, Indiana, and back to Minnesota again. So from Minnesota, it's a nice circuitous route. And we would just go every morning or get up in the morning and wherever we were, we'd say, where do you want to go? And, uh, well, I know this guy down here and we just drive. We had two weeks to kill. It was a lot of fun. I suggest you do it sometime. And uh, with your best friend, I tell you, it makes, you know, it really shows you what a friend is. And uh, one time we came down to one friend, I can't remember where it was exactly, uh, somewhere in Tennessee, and we told him our plans for the next day. Frankly, we don't have any plans. Do you have any idea where we should go? Because we have a couple days to kill. He said, well, I've got a friend who is a Christian friend of mine in the military, and he's at a Christian school in South Carolina. I'll tell you what, Bowdoin's University. And he said, uh, tell you what, how about if I give him a call and see if he can put you up? He's a married fellow, has a, has a wife. No kids, but uh, let's see if he can do anything for you. Well, he, you know, and so he, we stop at a telephone booth on the road with our friend. We've just gone out to eat, and he calls this guy up. I'm sitting outside. Dan and I are sitting outside the telephone booth listening in, kind of thinking, oh, brother, this is, how embarrassing. I mean, the two guys straggling in, 
And uh, he hangs up the phone, comes out and says, no problem. Uh, he works at a hospital. Him and his wife both work all night at a hospital. So he gave us directions, very scanty directions. This guy didn't really know where it was, but he says, just follow a sign and you'll find a hospital. Maybe, maybe it's the right one. So we're, we're driving along, reading C.S. Lewis by Carlite. We're really enjoying ourselves. And, and uh, here comes, it's about 11 o'clock, and uh, this blue H sign along the road where we're supposed to see it. I thought, I said, we said, well, should we try it? Okay, let's just see what happens. And uh, we saw a hospital in the distance. So we drive up, and we don't know where we are really. And I see coming from the shadows, it's long, it's, it's a big overhang. Uh, this is the emergency exit or emer- the emergency entrance. And this, this lone figure walking out, I thought it was a security guard. And I turned to Dan, and I remember saying this. I said, wouldn't that be amazing if he says, is this Ron and Dan? <laughs> wouldn't that be amazing? So I rolled down my window, I'm on the passenger side, and in this, in, in comes, all I see, to this day, it's all I know this guy, an arm with a set of keys dangling. And he says, are you Ron and Dan? And I said, yeah. He says, well, my house is at, and he gave us the address, and says, it's all yours. Uh, loving the Lord, and maybe someday we'll see you, you know. In my lap falls a set of house keys. You know. Now, imagine the effect. I'm rolling up the window. He walks back. And I say, you know, what's going on here? I mean, I've got the house keys for a, uh, for a fellow. I don't know what kind of house it was, frankly, yet. I got there. We got there. It was the most beautiful house. You know, grand piano. When you, when you come in, you bump into it. And just a beautiful home. All the desks. We had two plates set up for us. Food in the, food in the refrigerator. Hamburgers ready to be cooked. Uh, the place just royally decked out for us. Well, we, we go to bed that night, and, and, and we get up the next morning, and we go, because he doesn't get back yet till 7.30, but to leave a little earlier. And to this day, I don't know who he is. Now, I left a note there saying thank you, whoever you are, <laughs> for what you've done. What was the one thing that made us together, that made him reach his arm in and drop a set of house keys to a beautiful home to two guys straggling along a country road what made him do that? I suggest to you one thing. He knew what it was to be part of the body of Christ. He said, you guys are Christians. That's enough for me. Have fun. I mean, I, I know that can be a dangerous thing sometimes. But he, was, he said, you're Christians. That's all I want to know. So, let me if I can read my last point because I don't want to misstate it. He understood. Here's my point. He understood what the church was. Not only on a local level, I trust you as part of, in fact, that's where he got the kind of character that man had to be that loving, frankly, was on a local level, helping other people that he could every day, but not only on a local level, but in an extended level, to an extended level as well. And that's part of the teaching, I believe, of the local assembly. We need this, because God is not humble, because we are not reliable on our own, and we need this because... The church is not individual. We've got to uh, spread out. And the only way we can do that is to get the growth here to start with before we head out. Thank you for your attention. Let's pray as we close. In fact, would you stand with me to do so? Father, we are appreciative again of uh, your word and how uh, simple it really is concerning this idea of the church. We are a group that has uh, simply been left behind with your spirit's help to be a witness to this world. Help us do that very thing with uh, vim and vigor and uh, a a lot of resourcefulness and a lot of courage that uh, which which will of course be needed as we confront a world that really does not like our message bless again this group this marvelous group of of people you've put together this year help their studies to be uh, a time of enjoyment for them even the college experience as a whole we pray all these things in jesus name and for his sake amen